WATD presents The People's Truth, a show dedicated to bringing communities together and keeping the truth alive. Join us each week as we shine the light of justice on topics, people, and local businesses that highlight the real people's truth. Here is your host, Benny Rabbi. Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. It's 9 o'clock. It's Monday night. It's 95.9 FM WATD. Thank you, our listeners over on WBMS 1460 AM and 101.1 FM. Good evening, good evening. Welcome to The People's Truth. My name is Benny Rabbi. I'll be your host for this evening. We got a great show lined up for you, folks. We are keeping the truth alive, and we're bringing communities together in the process, and it's going to be a great time all around. We've got a great local guest in from the South Shore, and he's going to tell us about his experience with something that is near and dear to a lot of our hearts, and it has been an ongoing problem. But finally, some light at the end of the tunnel. Before we get into that, folks, if you'd like to learn more about the people's truth and get involved in a future episode, if you've got some ideas, some criticisms, you like me, you hate me, you can't live without me, you can't wait to never hear me again, whatever it is, I want to hear about it. You can reach out to us directly to the show here at thepeoplestruth33 at gmail.com. You can also reach out to the mothership at excitedsoundsstudios.com. Uh, at gmail.com catch us eventually we're going to be coming up on Twitter and Instagram coming up soon and eventually yes the rumors are true we will be posting all of our episodes available for download and streaming ability across multiple platforms we're most likely going to be starting with Podbean and that will be uh, the People's Truth 33 notice a little bit of synchronization there it's a beautiful thing Uh, definitely looking forward to hearing from folks we will have a special guest joining us later in the program a former major leaguer so definitely don't miss out on whom that could be but in the meantime I'd like to waste no time and invite on to the show with me our guest tonight ladies and gentlemen Mr. Tony LaGreca is in sir good evening and thank you for joining us on the program yes thank you Ben Uh, It's my pleasure to be here and talk about a subject that I'm very dear to me, uh, which is the um, opioid epidemic. And right now, um, because of the COVID pandemic, the opioid epidemic is going, is pretty much out of control. And and this is an an issue that uh, we got to get our hands around, but we have to get our hands around both things, the pandemic and the opioid epidemic. Uh, the, right now, the since 2019, the numbers were getting better on the opioid side. We were actually going down in the number of deaths. But then in 2020, because of the pandemic uh, and people being isolated, this is that big issue. Is people being isolated is one big issue. A big thing uh, called loneliness. It is an ongoing issue that we do fight in our communities, not only amongst, like you're saying here, but the veterans community as well. That's correct. And then we're... Uh, we're up about 30 to 40 percent nationwide in deaths this year with opioids. These are prescription opioids that I'm referring to. That's how the type of people that get get hooked on these is usually from a prescription after having a wisdom teeth or uh, taken out. When dentist gives them a prescription for Percocet or you get a sports injury, um, that's another big issue. And then the the third thing is getting into a car accident. You end up in the emergency room, and right away they start 
pumping you in with some kind of opioid, whether whether it's Percocets or oxycodone. Or whether you want it or not in some cases. Oh, yeah. Most of the time, you don't even know what you're taking before before they let you know that it's already in your system. Right, and we go there, we trust the doctors, we trust the medical staff, as we've always done, and uh, to find out after the fact here that they not all of them had those best interests in heart, and that's a large problem. Obviously, it's caused what you just said, an epidemic. Now, uh, before we dive into all of it, I just want to give folks at home a little bit of context. You were actually interviewed recently on uh, NBC Today, is that right? That's right. It's... Uh I was actually on the Lester Holt show the night before, and they put me on for. I was. I spoke with um, um, the the interview lady person, um, Susan. Kate I, Snow, I believe it was. Yeah, Kate Snow, and uh, she actually talked to me for a good forty-five minutes. And what they did was they took just a few pieces of that uh, and cut in into them into their section of their of the news story and we do actually have that audio uh, we'd love to play it for the people listening at home just so we can get everybody up to speed on uh, where we're going with this and, and where this is all going to lead to is that all right yeah that'd be good if you play that now and then um i will um comment on it after then the people get a better understanding of what it's about Absolutely. So we are going to now listen to that audio, and this was NBC's Kate Snow reporting for today. New outrage directed at Purdue Pharma and its super-wealthy owners from the Sackler family. Under a settlement agreement, Purdue would plead guilty to three federal criminal charges related to its role in pushing the powerful painkiller OxyContin, which earned the company more than $35 billion. The government is seeking billions in fines, penalties, and damages. But a key part of the agreement involves restructuring the company. The Sacklers out. The agreed resolution, if approved by the court, will require that the company be dissolved and no longer exist in its present form. The new company would be allowed to continue selling OxyContin, with future profits going to the government to help fight the opioid crisis. The Attorney General of Massachusetts says that makes no sense. And the idea that our Department of Justice all of a sudden wants to become a drug company that they want to get a share of future profits of a lethal drug that has hurt and poisoned so many families, it's just wrong. The company says it deeply regrets and accepts responsibility for its misconduct. The Sackler family agreeing to pay $225 million directly to the government, saying in a statement they acted ethically and lawfully. Sackler family members could still face criminal charges. Part of this issue here is they resolved the civil case with the Sacklers where they only required them to pay out $225 million of a fortune. Since 1999, opioids have killed more than 450,000 Americans. In the settlement, Purdue admits it did not stop OxyContin from being diverted from pharmacies and doctors, and that it paid doctors to write more prescriptions. Tony LaGreca's son was prescribed OxyContin after a college sports injury. He died of an opioid overdose in 2014. Somebody has to pay for the deaths and the crime that they've committed. This is a crime. Crimes involve people going to jail. He's glad Purdue is taking some responsibility, but says it's not enough. The rest of my life and the rest of a lot of other parents' lives are never going to be the same. So why should the Sacklers have a life that's the same for them? 
There have been so many lawsuits against Purdue by states, cities, and thousands of families who had hoped to receive some compensation. I've met children who were born to mothers who were abusing pills, and those families wanted a seat at the table, too. It's unclear exactly how much money individuals and local governments will ever see. It's up to a bankruptcy court judge now to approve this massive settlement. And the Department of Justice says all of the creditors agree that any money Purdue has should go toward preventing abuse and treatment treatment for those addicted guys. Uh, so, Tony, a lot to digest in that one. And I know this has been your your life and, and unfortunately, in some ways, your nightmare for many years, as it was just saying. And first of all, I'm so sorry for the loss of your son and the loss of everybody's child. Just that it, it, None of them should have been lost. And from what I was hearing there, and from my big takeaway is two things. Like you said, one, why why are the Sackler family members being allowed to still be? And two, why is the government trying to take profits from the thing that they're punishing the Sackler family for? Maura Healy said it's absolutely ridiculous that they're going to take over a company that's been killing people and and then they claim they're going to use the profits for to put people in rehab. The greater and, good. Yeah, that's totally whacked. It just doesn't make sense. No, it's not. It's, I, totally, it's totally absurd. Fancy myself a pretty logical person, and I just don't see it. Well, here, the, first of all, though, um, almost a year ago, uh, Purdue Pharma, which is the, the company that the Sacklers own, um, they filed for bankruptcy. And at the bankruptcy hearing way back eight, nine months ago, they claimed they only have $4.5 billion in assets in the company. So here's the government claiming that they got this 8.4, 8.5 billion dollar settlement, which that's also absurd because there isn't any money, because the Sacklers have already taken the money out and have put it in offshore banks. We know for a fact that Richard Sackler and family have about 12 billion billion with a B dollars in offshore banks, and they've already taken the money out of the company. So right away. Um, that's where the that's where the heart of the money is, and that's where we need to go. But so the government claiming that they got this eight billion dollar settlement, um, as I said, with only four point five billion in the company. Only you need, you need to know that that we have one hundred and forty thousand lawsuits from parents who have lost a child, uh, or a husband or a wife who have lost a spouse, where they were damaged by Purdue already. And that $4.5 billion was supposed to be split up um, to those people who have lost a child somewhere over the past 12, 15 years because of Purdue. And now we have to compete with the government by that same money. Um, and that's not right. You know, the, the, the government didn't really get hurt per se. The individuals are ones who should be entitled to this money. That's the way I see it. You know, absolutely. Um, I mean, they're the ones that actually suffered, correct? And lost family and loved ones and friends and things you cannot replace on this world, correct? You know, Maura Healy is one of the few attorney generals in the country who have um, gone after the Sackler family directly. And the one thing that that is good is even though the Sacklers were ordered to pay two hundred and seventy-five million, and to give you an example of how little that is to them. 275 million when you've got 13 billion is like um, having $10 in your pocket and you have to give a dime to somebody. 
uh, you know, you still got $9.90, so it isn't going to hurt you much. So that's, that's peanuts, peanuts for what they've made off of this off of these drugs. And how many years have they basically been doing this to folks? I mean, don't Nin get me wrong. 1995 is when this really started. Wow. And yet no one really knew who, what, when, why, where up until a certain point. Now well, that's not true either because in, in 1999, um, they, they went back to the FDA and they asked the, when I say they, I mean Richard Sackler, they went back to the FDA and they got their people to convince the FDA that, that Oxycontin oxycodone and opioids could be used for all forms of pain management. So right now, the pain management up to that point, technically oxycodone was only supposed to be used for end-of-life care. And they've convinced the FDA to make it so that if you get a broken thumb or a, or a stubbed toe or anything, um, you could get opioids for that um, instead of end-of-life care. And they, they use this um, this, some, some, I'd say a trial where this guy named Jeremiah Jick um, put ten, you know, tested 10,000 people under hospital conditions, and he made his claim in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine that less than 1% got addicted. Well, that was all done within less than a three-day trial. So it's really not a very good trial. I don't think anybody would take a, a vaccine that had been on the market for three-day trial. Uh, so I know I wouldn't. Yeah. But that's so just me. Everyone's got their own opinion. And, but, but the Sacklers ran with it, and they put out all kinds of literature, and they actually paid doctors for, to write prescriptions. They paid them, and they knew. Because in one of the depositions we have from Richard Sackler, he said, if anybody gets addicted, we'll just blame it on them for abusing the drug. Well, the drug abuses the patient. The patient doesn't abuse the drug. So that's where that's coming from. And so that was one of his big things. And, um, and then in 1999, they also came out with oxycodone. Now, oxycodone is, um, is a type of drug that is, um, is used <clears throat> for supposedly 12 hours of relief. So basically, it's oxycodone on steroids. So you take it and you get it for you know, 12 hours, and then, and then sometimes they would give you oxycodone as a filler. So in other words, they, they know it starts to wear off after eight, to eight or nine hours, and they say, well, if you start to feel pain coming back, um, use, use the oxycodone in between. Use and some more it, of this. And, and at the end of the 12 hours, um, then you go take another one. And, and they also coated them to make it sound like, oh, like people can't crush them and snort them. So they coated them. And that has nothing to do with the problem with the addiction. Once they're in your system, the coating melts down, goes into your blood system, and it goes right to your brain. And you should know that opioids do nothing whatsoever to, um, to actually make the pain go away. They don't heal anything. Cover. They just mask it. Yes. Yeah, I understand we have Michael on the phone. We do. We're actually going to take our first commercial break coming up real quick. And then when we come back, we do have our first guest on the line and uh, he's calling in locally. So we'll take that first commercial stay, break. Stay tuned. For, listen to Michael. He's got a new uh, wellness center, which is going to treat people with addiction problems right in Cohasset, right down the street from us here. Wow. No, that's and about as local as it's going to get. State of the art facility. So Michael's going to give us the lowdown on that when we come back. Love it. You're listening to The People's Truth here on 95.9 FM WATD. Don't touch that dial.
year 2020, a powerful replica of the Vietnam Wall in Washington, D.C. will be permanently displayed at the Veterans Memorial Bicentennial Park in Fall River for veterans, families, and visitors from our local area, as well as all of Massachusetts and Rhode Island. The wall will honor the men and women who made the heroic and ultimate sacrifice in Vietnam. Help us make this very special memorial a reality. Please visit VietnamMemorialWall.org. Welcome back, folks, to The People's Truth here on 95.9 FM WATD. I'm your host, Benny Rabbi. We are here live in studio with Tony LaGreca. And now we are being joined on the phone by a local man from Cohasset who's opening a brand new wellness center right on Chief Justice Cushing Highway. Tony, I'll let you go ahead and introduce our guest, but I'm excited for this one. Yes, I learned about Michael through uh, Jim Wahlberg. And I can tell you, Michael is very, very concerned about getting people healthy. Um, and I'm going to let Michael tell his own personal story. But uh, he's building a state-of-the-art uh, wellness center where people who have substance use disorder, which is what I'd like to call it, because addiction is a disease, and people need to recognize that. It's not a weakness, it's a disease. And that, that we need to make sure that that information gets out to people all the time, you know. So, Mike, give us a, a lowdown of yourself and also talk to us about what you're planning on doing at the uh, Evoke Wellness Center. And welcome to the People's Truth. Awesome. Well, thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate you having me on the air this evening. And, and Tony, I appreciate the, the introduction and the uh, the selection of language uh, chosen to use because language is, is so important uh, and so impactful, uh, you know, not only uh, for, um, you know, individuals struggling uh, with a substance use disorder in terms of uh, diminishing, you know, barriers because ultimately language contributes to the stigma in so many different ways. Um, so, uh, I do appreciate, you know, the carefulness that you uh, put into making sure that uh, you're, you're, you do, you know, in every every sentence, eliminating uh, as best as you can the stigma uh, that so many people struggle with addiction. So, uh, but I'm, I'm happy to join into the show. I've uh, been listening along, uh, so it's been a great discussion so far. Um, just, you know, to introduce myself, I'm, I'm a person in long-term recovery. I grew up uh, on the north side of the city uh, in Boston, uh, right outside Boston in a, in a town called Arlington, Mass. Um, but uh, my, my injury, uh, coincidentally enough, that kind of opened the door to prescription opioid pain medication was uh, in a hockey game when I was playing for Arlington High against Hingham, Massachusetts, in the South Shore, right in this area that we're, um, you know, opening up the inpatient detox and residential facility in Cohasset. Um, so that, that was the, the kind of the beginning and the end to a lot of my um, uh, sports um, because I broke my wrist severely uh, and had pins put on my arm and had surgery just to repair the nerve damage. And uh, it started, um, you know, the, the prescribing of, of opiate pain medication at that point to deal with the pain. And this was in the early 2000s, uh, right when OxyContin really started to boom. So uh, I had the uh, the firsthand experience of, of, of uh, what, um, you know, pain medication can kind of open the door to, uh, really struggled 
uh, in my own personal uh, addiction, going in and out of a lot of short-term programs, a lot of quick-fix solutions uh, that didn't necessarily um, confront the, the real issues at hand, the underlining issues. Um, but fortunately, I had the opportunity um, to get connected to longer inpatient care. Uh, and, 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 you know, by the grace of God, I'm, I'm here today with, with a little over 11 years clean and sober. Um, and Congratulations, been, by the way. Sorry to interrupt. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, we, we definitely have, uh, you know, a serious uh, topic, you know, because there is just so much destruction uh, and devastation caused uh, by the grips of addiction for those who struggle and the families kind of left in the wake, uh, you know, of those who are struggling um, with the accidental overdose deaths, uh, the fatalities are just the numbers are just continuously climbing uh with with the shutdowns and the isolation with coronavirus we're we're seeing the numbers going in the in the wrong direction right now that the cases have increased uh you know uh mental health and, and addiction related issues is just skyrocketing right now so um it's definitely uh you know an important agenda but i definitely wanted to just disclose my own personal journey and uh, and also the fact that I, you know, that I am in long-term recovery because it is also important to get messages of hope because people do recover. Um, you know, when treatment is, is available, um, you know, there is an opportunity for people to get well. And I think that sometimes when you're in, you know, such desperation and such despair, uh, you need to, uh, you know, have somewhat of a, of a glimmer of hope because uh, it, it almost always seems like a very hopeless situation, not just for those struggling, but also the family members. Absolutely. Uh, you know, that's why. Yeah. Now that sounds like uh -huh. a very unique opportunity, especially here in the South Shore. You just don't see this pop up every day. So I'm just curious to hear, Mike, tell us a little bit more about how this project came to be. What's it called? Have you guys opened yet? And if not, how can people get in line? Yeah, so the the program is evokewellnessma.com, but you can go to evokewellness.com as well to find our location. Um, so we're in uh, right on the Cohasset Hingham border on Chief Justice Cushing Highway, for those in the South Shore that are familiar uh, with that area. Um, so we actually identified a, uh, it used to be a skilled nursing facility uh, in this area uh, that was closed down. That was the perfect location for an inpatient uh, detox and residential wellness center um, because it, it's, it sits pretty much by itself on eight and a half acres of land. So it's a very peaceful, uh, serene environment. It's just an unbelievable place to be able to go, you know, take a step back from life, um, you know, walk into an, you know, an inpatient care that doesn't feel institutionalized, um, that you're very comfortable. You have the ability to be able to recover uh, in a comfortable, safe environment to work with the staff here at the facility and work on your underlining issues to set yourself up for what returning back to your community looks like and the reintegration back home with the help of, you know, the clinical and the case management team that's assigned to you while you're in the stay, you know, at the facility. Um, so you, you definitely have that experience. But uh, what really made it all possible that I think is also very much important uh, um, to mention is 
when we found the location, we very we, we assumed that we were going to have a lot of resistance by the community uh, for this particular use of this building um, because of the stigma. Uh, you know, somewhat to what we talked about early on about how important it is to use the right language. Um, so when you go into these types of projects, you just assume. Um, from what you hear and what I've heard prior to, you know, this location is, you know, we want to help. We want to have resources, just not in our backyard, not in our community. So we kind of anticipate, you know, that type of resistance. And uh, dealing with the, the local community around here, we were just blown away by the level of support. Uh, for this project, um, you know, to create more resources in their backyard, in this community, to be able to help the residents that are uh, affected by addiction uh, and the family members in their town that have loved ones struggling, you know, with addiction. So we were just completely blown away. And it, and it really speaks high, highly to the level of, of conversations that have been taking place uh, by, for many years by um, yourselves, you know, with this uh, radio station and, and, you know, Tony LaGreca and the work that he's been doing in the community on the advocacy side. Uh, all of those conversations, all of those uh, community events, the uh, candlelight vigils, the, uh, you know, awareness that's being raised, the um, people that have gone in these uh, parades and marched alongside other uh, businesses to just show recovery and how recovery is possible. All of that has an impact. And we felt that impact in a positive way. And that was when we went through the process of trying to open up this facility. And for that, I was just completely blown away. And that gives me hope uh, that things are changing. Absolutely. You know? I just wanted to mention that. And like I said, I mean, that's just uh, around this area, uh, something like this just popping open and here it is. It just doesn't happen every day. And uh, like you found, communities are very open and welcome to things that actually, and, and get this, I know it's a logical conundrum but get this services that actually help people tony i know you love services that actually help people, people. Oh, results yeah. <clears throat> they're kind of ironclad how can you say no no that's that's the most important thing is is the word hope and 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 also a good support system i i notice on your website michael that you have a developing a sport net support network um, and I and I believe that's really crucial because so many people get treatment for a limited time, and then Correct. and then they don't have any support after that, and and being in touch with and and having a sponsor and staying staying with somebody and staying and going back to either to AA or to Knox and I can't what do they call it NA, and um, doing that is is so critical. I wanted to ask you. Um, now, I see the phone number here, the 617 number. Is that the number they should call? That, that, that is correct, yes. So it's you a, can go to that right on, right on evokewellness.com. you got the local number um, for Evoke Wellness MA. Um, yeah, it's six that one, will be able to direct you. And I give it out. It's 617-917-3485. And if you want to go get a pen, I'll, I'll give you that number again after the next commercial break. 617 917 Three four eight five, and that's the front desk. So that's how you start your your journey with Evoke Wellness and get involved. That that's that's the opening ticket, right? That that is, and that could be a loved one as well that may have uh, someone who is unwilling to get help because the window of willingness closes very quickly. So we we work with the families to help uh, engage a loved one who's struggling to move those conversations forward in a positive direction. 
Yeah. Now, you take all forms of insurance? We, at this time, we're at a network because we, we are waiting to get our license, which is going to be issued this week. Um, well, the, the inspection took place last week. We're just waiting for the final walkthrough by the uh, DEA, actually, this week. The DEA uh, so we'll does that, really? They do it for the ability to, um, you know, medically detox uh, the patients. You have to have controlled, you know, narcotic medications, obviously. Correct, correct. Um, to, for the medical staff to be able to safely and comfortably do so in the detox level of care. Um, so they will be out, and that's the final step. And uh, as of this week, uh, we'll, we'll be able to start accepting patients in the, in the residential level of care. Um, so if they contacted us, we'll, we'll be able to get them connected immediately and set up. So, so let's say I'm listening to this, or a parent or somebody who's listening to this that knows someone who's in trouble. And I say, well, look, I, I, I can't go because I'm on heroin, and I'm going to get wicked dope sick. Uh, you know, when they go through detox, I go into being dope sick, and after two or three days, I just can't take it anymore. So uh, tell me, what, what does the program do for someone who's in a serious uh, dope sickness situation? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you, you're going to have to treat everybody individually. You know, the medical protocols are put into place uh, to be able to uh, hopefully, you know, mitigate their, 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 the, the, the restlessness, you know, the legs, the, the irritability that, uh, that happens when somebody is withdrawing or showing withdrawal symptoms from the drugs that they're taking. So, um, you know, most people that are struggling, they're, they're full of fear of withdrawal. I can speak from my own personal experience. I was more terrified of withdrawal than I was of getting arrested or even dying because withdrawal was the only thing that I felt like I had direct control over. So once I understood what withdrawals felt like, at that point, my whole life changed because now I started to live in fear of withdrawal. So my whole day-to-day -day revolved around making sure that I wasn't sick. So I need to do whatever I need to do on a day-to-day -day basis to support my habit to avoid those withdrawal symptoms. You know, and that's how you live. You live in complete fear. So the idea of going into an inpatient facility, you know, you have to overcome the biggest fear of that individual, and that's them feeling uncomfortable. But you have to go through periods of discomfort. You know, it just has to be managed in a way that ultimately uh, diminishes it as much as possible. But discomfort is part of recovery. There's there's no way of avoiding it. That's but right. the, the the idea of being in an inpatient setting and having you know staff around you supporting you through those periods of discomfort, having other patients that you're building relationships with on a peer-to-peer -peer basis, you know, that, that type of support and, and ultimately um, the, the inability of having the option of getting high can help kind of suppress, you know, the racing thoughts and the feelings of restlessness and just ultimately get people through the tougher days ahead to get to the good days that are just right on the other side nearing. So the biggest thing of, of really being in an inpatient program is for that individual to just stay, to stay put long enough to stop being able to sleep right on their own, to stop feeling better, because that's when they start coming out of, you know, coming out of the fog, you know, getting to that moment of clarity. And when that moment hits, now you can 
really start addressing the real issues, the underlining issues. So it's all about getting an individual to stay stopped long enough for them to be more willing to receive the treatment. So you're going to deal with, you know, people who are going to be resistant all along the way, you know, but it's just about just getting through each day, one day at a time. Because you can't look too far ahead in the future. It's too overwhelming. You really just have to focus on the moment. And when you're surrounded by people that love you and care about you and support you, that are fighting for you the, the, the entire way through it, uh, it does make a difference of whether or not that person decides to stay that hour, that minute, that day. You know, and that's our goal every single day with the patients that are in our care is to get them through that hour. You know, get them through that minute sometimes. Wonderful. And when you have a lot of people that have been through it themselves working there on the staff at Evoke Wellness, it makes a big difference for how the patients can relate uh, and how the staff can relate to the patients, you know, for sure. <clears throat> Michael, I have a couple more questions. You don't mind staying on, but we have to take a commercial break right now. Sounds good. Looking forward to Hold it. On. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, you folks. You're listening to The People's Truth. 95.9 FM WATD. Don't you dare touch that dial. We still got so much to go, and we still have more guests coming at you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The People's Truth. Benny Rabbi here with you. 95.9 FM WATD. And uh, do stay tuned after the program, 10 o'clock. Americana Rama, Mikey G will be spinning the tunes that'll keep you through till 1 a.m. And then stay tuned until 5 for all the good stuff. Just a great night lined up, folks. We still have Tony LaGreca live in studio here with us. And we also have Mr. Mike Duggan. He's going to be the owner of Evoke Wellness Center on the line with us. And Mike, thank you so much for joining us on the program tonight. We had a couple more questions before we let you go and uh, right off into the night, my friend. But Tony, why don't you go ahead <laughs> yeah, and uh, no pick it right up. Mike, hanging out with you, gentlemen. <laughs> Mike, I want to clear up something for people. The Cushing Highway um, is Route 3A. So for those, Correct. For those people who have who are listening because we're on in Brockton and uh, the surrounding towns a little bit away from Cohasset and Hull. So <clears throat> we just want to make sure people that have been to Paragon Park in the old days, that's Route 3A. Uh, yes. It's easy to that, get to. That's <laughs> if you took a right at the circle instead of going straight. Yeah. That's then, right. Paragon Park would have been straight ahead. So it's easy access to get to the facility. And again, I want to repeat that phone number, 617-917-3485. Now, you know, anybody who's out there and they feel like they're on the edge or they're desperate and they want to get some, uh, they want to get some support. They want to be heard. Heard. Make the call. And if you're a relative, get the information and maybe you can, you know, give the information to the person who's got the substance use disorder and, and you can talk them into it. But, you know, my big theory is the family's got to be on board. Um, I helped somebody write a book once called BOMB, which stands for Be a Loving Mirror. Oh, yeah. I'm very familiar. And yep. um, me and Beverly worked on that book a couple of years ago. And, you know, we, we know that if the, family isn't, if the family isn't involved in showing love and care, not enabling, but showing that, you, you know, you're going to be a loving mirror, um, it all helps. Because, obviously, if you have someone in the family, no matter whether it's your husband, your wife, or a child and they have substance use disorder of any type, whether it's alcohol or drugs. Um, it could be gambling, you know, it could be a variety of different things. Um, you've got to help, you've got to give them support, but you can't enable them. And that's the, the worst thing. And so my, my so question... Exactly. It's a fine line to walk. And, 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 and Tony, to, to, that, to that point, if you, don't, if you don't mind me also interjecting briefly, 
Um, what you, you mentioned re- recovery, and you mentioned the supports and, and aftercare, and you mentioned you know re- AA meetings and you know NA and small recovery and different meetings. But uh, you know, to that point, when you're talking about the family, so when you look at what's been successful with AA and the and the twelve steps, part of the first step of of an Alcoholics Anonymous program is not only admitting that you're powerless, but that your life is unmanageable. So the disease of addiction is all about unmanageability. So us as society, us as families, us as support, we can't expect somebody with the disease of an unmanageable life to manage their own care to get themselves well. And that's where it's so critical for families. I'm a certified interventionist as well uh, by profession, and and we often hear, you know, I can't help because my loved one is unwilling to get help. But there's a lot that we can be doing on the planning stage to have that conversation with the person struggling prior to that conversation taking place. Because a lot of times, if it, let's say uh, a family member goes up to a loved one and says, you know, son, daughter, you know, whoever they are, uh, you know, this is, you know, a concern of mine that you need help and let's get you help. And the person miraculously accepts help and they don't know where they're going to go at that point forward. They, you know, they start doing the research and they come back to their loved one an hour or two later with with some options. That person's decision to go is probably now out the window. That willingness, that window of willingness is now closed. Sure. You know, so you want to do a lot of planning prior to intervening and having these conversations with your loved ones to know exactly when that window of willingness presents itself that you need to move them immediately into a direction of help uh, of help before they have a chance of changing their mind, you know? So that's where a, a lot of the work can go into it prior to that person being willing because willingness can happen in a fleeting moment and you have to be prepared uh, for those moments, uh, you know, in order to be able to kind of capture them and, and move them as opportunities. So you sure do. You sure do. And I just, we're, I'm watching the clock, unfortunately, because the show is just flying by. It's already coming up on our quarter break. So I want to make sure we ask this question. I wanted you gentlemen to touch on for just a few moments before we take our 945 break. Uh, there's a film I understand on the internet that's going around that's actually helping that purpose. And it's called whataboutthekidsfilm.com. Can you guys tell me about that? Well, it's a yeah, film that um, was ba- uh, basically, it's uh, faith-based. Uh, the Catholic Church actually uh, helped us, uh, support us financially to, to do this film. Uh, right now, one of the <clears throat> big issues is when somebody's in recovery, uh, a lot of times there are grandchildren or there are children involved, and the grandparents are taking over um, the care of the grandchildren. And uh, I was part of that film as well. Down, We filmed it down in Florida. And uh, somebody wants to watch that. It's free. It's just type in whataboutthekidsfilm.com. And you'll be able to watch the film. It's all one word. What about the kids film dot com? And how long is it roughly? 35 minutes, 40 minutes. So it's about and a half hour. You'll okay. see an eight year old girl who is, a, you know, who is a kind of a victim of her parents behavior and what happens in it and how she handles it. Uh, she's a phenomenal actress. You'll never see anybody like her at eight years old, as talented as this young girl. And she does a great job. And. And actually, the priest in the movie is the Archbishop of Florida. So he's um, he's the real deal, too. We have all good actors in it. Um, so uh, <clears throat> the, the main the main characters have been are well-known. So I really recommend that if you're in a situation where 
you 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 understand what's going on. I think it's good it, good to see what's actually happening out there. There's so many situations we could be on here for five hours talking about it. And my last question for Michael, Michael, how much how much is addiction is physical and how much is mental? How do you draw the line between one or the other? Uh, I would say in terms of the average stay in each level of care really addresses, um, you know, the, the physical versus the mental um, more than anything else. So, um, you, you know, the, the physical side, you know, the, the average length of stay in, in detox uh, is typically bet- between five to seven days, uh, and that's really addressing the the, the physical oh, you yeah. know symptoms. But you you're still going to have post acute withdrawal symptoms. You know you're still going to have people that are still feeling you know discomfort for for a few weeks. You know after completing their detox level of stay, and that's why it's so important for them to transition to the next step. Not feel that they have things under you know under control. Uh, a lot of times when people initially seek help, um, they, they only want to find the shortest solution, the quickest fix that they can get, you know, to fix their problems at that time, because they're looking for instant gratification because drugs and alcohol, they deliver instant gratification when they're feeling any type of unpleasantries, you know? So when they go through the recovery process, they're also looking for instant gratification and it doesn't exist. You know, yeah. you have to go through a process. Um, so when someone completes the detox, that's when you really start getting into the work. You know, that's when you start addressing their, you know, the reasons as to why you uh, use, you know, what are you really trying to, you know, uh, to, to suppress, you know, what are you really trying to, um, you know, not deal with uh, by self-medicating uh, with the drugs and alcohol. And, and those, are un- those are not easy things for people to, to start working on. And, and for, for many years, it's things that they intentionally avoided with, with the use of drugs and alcohol, you know. And Absolutely. Five to seven days is really not a long time. You really... I mean, it, it's the beginning. Yeah, yeah that's beginning. detox I mean, really, by yeah, detox by itself has a ninety nine percent failure rate. You know, you need a full continuum of care. You have to give yourself as much time as possible to recover. You, in a lot of ways, you're talking about years and years and years. Uh, you know, of having a history of drug abuse and alcohol abuse. You know, you can't expect to uh, get yourself back in shape and on track for a attempting to go back and to reintegrate into society and be successful with that reintegration with so much uh, with so so much limited time you know at hand you have to just give yourself uh, as much time as possible, and the unfortunate thing is you, you, you're never going to get enough time. You know, uh, the reality is you you want to you know uh, really dedicate and commit yourself to 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 your recovery as your primary uh, goal because everything else will tend to work itself out if you keep recovery first, so and true. everything else will will fall into place afterwards. Absolutely, sir. We are unfortunately up against the clock here, but I want to make sure we get the information out one more time. Can you just tell the folks at home listening how can they get a hold of you? How can they reach out to Evoke Wellness Center? Just give us that contact information one more time, sir. You got it. It's evokewellnessma.com and our phone number is 617 917 
3485 and toll toll free number as well as 833 evoke me which is easier to remember for those that don't have the ability to write it down uh, so give us a call if anything we can do to help and, and gentlemen i really appreciate the work that you're both doing uh covering this topic and just the years that you've focused on it has just made a tremendous impact and we felt it when we had the support from the town of opening up this facility thank you so much ladies and gentlemen mike duggan we look forward to having you on the program again mike we'll check in and see how everything's going after the grand opening and definitely look forward to hearing from you again thank awesome. you michael to it. thank you very much gentlemen thank you tony god bless have a okay. good night everyone thank you absolutely right. that's mike duggan ladies and gentlemen and what a story he had to share you're listening to the people's truth we've got a great surprise guest coming up for you folks former major leaguer don't touch that dial. When I say that, man, do I mean it. Stay tuned. You're listening to The People's Truth, 95.9 FM, WATD. Yes, it is that time. Benny Rabbi here with you. Tony LaGreca live in studio. You're listening to The People's Truth. And Lloyd, when I say, Tony, you have some guests, man. You really deliver, my friend. Oh, thank you, Ben. Uh, wait till next time. Wait till next time. How about this time, ladies yeah, and gentlemen? We got uh, Jeff Juden on the line. And uh, Jeff is one of the youngest people who was ever drafted into the major leagues from Massachusetts, especially. And, Absolutely. Uh, Jeff, are you there? Yeah, I'm here, Tony. How's it going, guys? Going Great good. Welcome to the program, sir. And uh, may I say, you've got the distinction of being one of our, our our first actual major leaguer. You are the first one, sir. So that is going to go down in the trivia books forever. Oh, man. Well, I'm grateful. So I appreciate <laughs> that. Been yeah. uh, listening to your show and, uh, you know, uh, great information, you know, for the folks out there that are uh, struggling with addiction. So, um yeah. An honor to be on there with you guys. How's it going? Thank you. And um, for those people who are into amateur sports as well as major league sports, um, after major leagues, there's actually more baseball to be played. And uh, Jeff played today in the MSBL, which stands for Men's Senior Baseball League. Uh, was that in uh, what city did you play in today, Jupiter? Uh, we were at the, uh, we played on the National Spring Training Site Field 4. It was in uh, Palm Beach. Palm Beach. So, oh, uh, wow, that must have yeah, been a beaut. Hot and sunny. Yeah, it was yeah, uh, a beautiful looked, I, place. I watched the video, it uh, looked like beautiful weather there. And uh, it looked like you were slinging it still pretty good. Um, but for those who have never seen Jeff, he's rather big. Um, he's about six foot nine, and um, he's lost a lot of weight, but he's. Uh, he's still in a force on the mound, and uh, if you the the rumor is when Jeff's pitching, don't don't dig in with your spikes <laughs> it's, because uh, it's good luck. <laughs> you, you need to be able to move real fast if he throws an inside up at your chin, um, and uh, that's kind of his motto. If he gets two strikes on you, you got to be real careful of where the ball's going to go. So um, I think he learned Gotta that at a very honest. young age. So yeah. So tell us a little bit, Jeff. While we got, we only got about nine minutes left here. But what's? Tell me about when you first were in the major leagues and you were nineteen and twenty. What was it like when you walked out on that field and you saw thirty-five thousand or fifty thousand people watching you? You knew there were people on, and you know every game is televised. So you know you're another couple of million are watching you at home. What were your thoughts when you were standing on the mound doing that? Well, I had just 
won a championship in Tucson, Arizona, the Pacific Coast League, and it was 1991, and uh, ended up making the flight across country in the debut. It was in Cincinnati at the, at the Riverfront Stadium there, and uh, it was intimidating, Tony. You know, guys, it was, uh, you know, they told me they were going to give me plenty of time to warm up, but that didn't happen. It was a day game. It was hot. You could see the heat waves on the turf, and uh yeah, they told me, oh, this guy pulled a hammer, you're in right now. And they didn't give me any time to warm up. They said, oh, take all the time you need. Go out there in front of 30,000 people there and, you know, just get loose right there on the mound. And, um, you know, I have to admit, it was, uh, I had a little bit of a jelly legs out there, man. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, you know. I don't think anyone's going to blame you, buddy. Can you remember you know, that? Right? It was can intimidating, you, really. Can you remember the first guy you faced? Oh man. Well, uh you know what I remember the most of it in the in the first inning I gave up a home run to Mariano Duncan and they shot off fireworks, man, and I, I Of course I, they did. <laughs> oh, I take yeah, it you were on the visiting you know, like you team. Seen then. on RBI and Nintendo back in the day, you know, you see all them them fireworks shooting up but uh you know, it scared the hell out of me, really. And um <laughs> and I didn't expect that. You know, bombs are going off. It was uh Quite the introduction, man. I had uh, I had very little sleep that day, and you know, for a Sunday afternoon game with all the excitement of the championship and the, and the travel and everything like that to get there. And um, but yeah, man, it was it was definitely uh, a thrill to be out there on the field. It was uh, you know the first person I called was my dad uh, and my mom and my dad to thank him, you know, for all the time they put into me and stuff as a kid and. And, uh, you know, I was just, uh, you know, it, it got easier from there, let's just say. Right. In you 1991, know. they didn't have the MLB network, so chances are they didn't get to see that game live, right? No, they didn't, unfortunately. Yeah, that's so, yeah. back in, so that yeah. So the next thing, um, who is the most, uh, who, what hitter did you fear the most when you were on the mound? And, uh, well, I didn't fear any hitter, Tony. They're all the same to me, man. Well but said. I had some great, great respect for for guys like you know Tony Gwynn and uh, you know Paul O'Neill, some hard-hitting left-handers. You know that um, you know I loved facing guys like Canseco and you know and uh, you know, home run hitters because they were swinging for the fences and. Um, as effectively wild as I was, and I had a pretty good slider at the time, uh, you know, I made pretty good work at him swinging for the fences with that. But, um, you know, contact hitters like Tony and, you know, gave me a hard time, man. You know, to hit that ball away to left field and shoot it that way. I'd come oh, yeah. inside with some off speed and yank it down the line. You know, it just felt like he could hit everything, you know. Well, and it, Tony yeah. Gwynn could because he was the uh... – uh, he won the every year. He was like the elite, he always was the leader in the, the highest batting average for like three or four years, right? And uh, he could hit yeah. every not just you, but he hit everybody. Apparently, um, he was tough. He did. Um, he certainly was. And then after a couple of years, you ended up in uh, the Montreal Expos, right? And that yeah. was your, one of your best seasons. You were like, what was your record in Montreal? In Montreal, I had a couple of seasons there. I came over from the Giants. They caught me off the waivers there. I finished out 1-0 with them and then started off. I think overall, I think I was, uh, I don't know, 16-4 and with the Expos over a couple of years. And, 
and had a nice streak there where I won 10 in a row and uh, over a year and a half of time. So uh, between San Francisco and Montreal. So it was, uh, it was probably the highlight as far as, um, you know, doing the best during the career at that time. Right. And, uh, yeah, Montreal being close to home, it was only six hours up the road. I had friends driving up to see me. So it helped to have familiar faces in, in the stands and cheering me on and stuff. And my parents got to come up and watch a couple of the games and stuff, too. It made it easier for them. That was about as close as I got to home. That's awesome. Uh, when I played. Yeah, they, in those days, you didn't play the, the Expos. Like today, they would have played the Red Sox, but now they, they weren't doing that back then, right? It was just a... a just, a local thing where the Red Sox might play the Phillies, and that was it. You didn't have all this inter-league inter stuff. Um, no. So how were the Canadian people? Did you find them real good baseball fans, or did you find them... Say bon, say bon, man. We, oui, we, oui. you know, it was... Uh, <laughs> <they> were... <laughs> I, you know, I learned a few words, man. Helped me get by, helped me get through. I took, took a couple years of French in high school and stuff, too, so I... Uh... Yeah, I thought they were great fans. You know, I enjoyed their enthusiasm. I was a hockey player growing up, and you know they were they you know they were hockey fans, man. You know that's what they remind. They yelled, they screamed, they were passionate, and um, you know they supported the Expos, man. And um, yeah, just um, yeah, it was a great time. Who is the manager that you like the best? I think the best players manager that I had was, was Dusty Baker. And, um, you know, he just had a way about him and to relate, uh, to the players, you know, being that he was a player himself. So I, I enjoyed, uh, Dusty and, uh, you know, I don't know. I had some different managers and, you know, I, I try to learn something from everybody, Tony. You know, they're all great in their own way. That's a know, great way to be. Jeff, I just... We, we're, positive. we're coming up on the last few moments of the show here. I just want to ask you, from from all of your experiences, from all your years in the majors, from everything you ever done, everything you ever did, everything you've yet to do, what was the most fun? What is the thing that stands out to you as the single most, yep, that was probably the funnest thing I've ever done in my life moment? I can I can guess, but go ahead, Jeff. Oh, uh, yeah, well, I mean, I don't know, man. I love to hit, man, you know? I, I so. think hitting that home, hitting the World Series, hitting the Grand Slam in Philadelphia, which I still have that on my on my iPad, that had to be pretty <laughs> awesome. It really was. It was special because it was for my mom's birthday. My mom and dad were in the stands. It was against uh, no most start of the game, but I actually hit it off a lefty reliever, John Cummings, for the Dodgers. And um, it was during the home run inning. It was the fourth inning, and a lady that had recently been widowed of a lost her husband to cancer with four children uh, won ten thousand dollars because I hit that home run, and I got to meet them the next day. They came into the to the stadium, so it was a god moment, you know. And uh, I was blessed to have a few, but um, that's unbelievable. I really remember that yeah, one. Yeah, I saw and that. It was special. That's beautiful. I saw that pitch was kind of high on the outside, and you just took went went with it, you know, and hey, it just kept on going. You know, everyone loves a good meatball sub every now and again, Tony. It's all I know. Yeah, it was a tough pitch, but he still, the way he hit it, because he hit it, didn't try to pull it. He hit it where it was. Right. And that was the secret. That's you know? how a pro does it. Gentlemen, we are in our final moment of the show here. Jeff, how can folks reach out to you? Any social media, anything you'd like to plug as far as that real quick? Yeah, man. I mean, I'm on Facebook and stuff, but I'm doing a podcast these days with a guy 
Mark Mancini, and we uh, it's called Let's Rock Sports Podcast. We're doing it Wednesday at six in the evening, and um, I usually post it on the Facebook, but uh, it's Blog Talk Radio, and it's Let's Rock Sports Podcast. So if you guys are familiar with the Blog Talk Radio, then uh, I guess you can find that on there. And Mark Mancini is the producer of it. So uh, we've done some nice shows with Johnny Damon and Pagliarulo. Uh, local guy and uh, Jason Bray, I'm hoping to have on here and Mark Ryder coming up here in the future, uh, you know, pretty soon. So, um, yeah, rock stars had Ricky Bird on, um, talking about some recovery and stuff. He just pumped out a new CD for folks interested in recovery, doing a great job along those lines. And, um, yeah, man. So that's kind of where I'm at these days, and, well, uh, trying to survive this Florida heat and baseball. So you, next time we have you, you on, you're going to have to tell us who you like better, Dusty Baker or Noah Clark. That's right. We're going to have to. Noah's, Noah's my great man. I got to tell you, man, he's a great. He's one of the best players, managers too. Noah, Noah's awesome. Shout out to Noah. Shout okay. out indeed. Thank you so much for joining us, Jeff. We'll uh, look to have you on the program another time. Thanks, Benny. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate awesome. It. Tony, I appreciate you, brother. You guys, God bless, man. Have a great night. There he is, Jeff Jude. Tony, thank you so much for joining us as well tonight on The People's Truth. We look to have you back as well, my friend. No problem. Just down the street. There Love it is. It. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. My name is Benny Rabbi. I've been your host on The People's Truth. Now, don't go nowhere as promised. Mikey G. Americana Rama coming up next. Here we go, W-A-T-D.